come from a very sort of medical background and that I think has always infused me with a sort of sense of the importance of people and understanding people. This is not really keeping me happy. I'm, I've become a very corporate animal. Hello and welcome to Workle's Happiness Podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. I used to be the boss of Waitrose and the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, and it's there that I began my interest in how we work and how being happier at work can not only transform an individual's life, but transform an organisation. On this podcast, I find out how happy people really are at work and discuss what steps they take to get happier. My guest on this edition of the Work All Happiness podcast is Peter Cheese. Peter is the Chief Executive of the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development, more commonly known as CIPD. He's recognised as a consultant, speaker and writer in the field of human capital in organisations and has worked with many organisations, practitioners and thought leaders in the field of people and organisations. He's also Chair of the What Works Centre for Wellbeing and of the Engage for Success movement and sits on a number of advisory boards and forums. He co-chairs with the Government Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, the Flexible Working Task Force, which is focused on promoting and understanding flexible working in organisations and workplaces. So, Peter, you're an absolute expert in the field of people and people management and organisational structures. But, But tell us, first of all, about your early years, your childhood. Um, Mm. I don't imagine that you saw that as being your career, or perhaps I'm wrong, perhaps you did. (laughs) No, I didn't, Mark, but it sort of got some connections. So both my parents were doctors. I got two grandparents who were doctors. I got a brother who's a doctor. I had an aunt who was a nurse. So I come from a very sort of medical background, and that I think has always infused me with the sort of sense of the importance of people and understanding people. And whilst I did reach what turned out to be the right decision, I think when I was about 14, 15, not to go into the medical profession, because at that time I was following a natural path, it has always stayed with me. And I I sort of describe myself as a a humanist in some ways. I mean, I've just always been really, really interested in people. And uh, and of course, when when you then translate it into what I do now, it's about thinking about the importance of the work environment of people in terms of their development, their well-being, their all these other dimensions start to come together much more powerfully. So there is some sort of logic even going back to my very early days and, and um, you know, subjects like biology was one of my favourite subjects at school and, and I'm still absolutely fascinated by things like neuroscience, for example, in the context of work as we, we now understand these things. And so just take us through your path at school. So um... Tell us what you studied and what your interests were, and then talk to us about your university years. Yeah, so I, I went to very good school. I was very fortunate, um, as I said, studied the sciences in order to, because it, as I was sort of going through my early teens, I thought that's where I wanted to be, was to be a doctor. So I was studying physics, chemistry, and biology and mathematics, um, but then realized I wanted to take a different path. And if I'm honest, uh, it was a rather crucial junction when I decided I wanted to take a bit of a different path, which is my first year of A-levels. So I slightly gave up on them, if I'm honest, and, and pursued a lot of other interests. I, I was always very interested in sport and other activities. Uh, I started to do quite a lot of flying. I was in the um, uh, what was called the Combined Cadet Force and, and was always interested in flying. Um, very nearly joined the RAF when I was 17. I went through all the selections. Um, 
in order to go into flying fast jets, which of course were all young, well not all, but many young men, I suppose, would ultimately like to aspire to. But um, then they told me, well, you're going to have to sign up for 16 years and there's no guarantee you'd be flying anything. You might not make the grade. And I thought, woo, wait a minute. Um, and then, then it was um, actually it was my biology teacher who said to me, why aren't you going to university? And I said, because I didn't think my grades were good enough. And he said, you should absolutely go to this university, Loughborough University, and you should study this subject called ergonomics. Um, and I looked at it and thought, yeah, that does sound really interesting because it brought together these interests of understanding of people, but putting them into a sort of system and environment, you know, whether it be a workplace, quite literally the physical design of workplaces or, or into organizations um, and of course, understanding things like technology. And so that was a, a seminal moment in my career. And when, when, we, when we talk about teachers and their impact on you, sometimes it can be a, almost a fleeting conversation, which the teacher probably will never remember that actually set me on a particular path. And so I ended up going to Loughborough University, um, did this wonderful course. Um, it was a sandwich course. I also had a year out in industry, studied ergonomics, which was about half and half between understanding things like physiology and psychology and all of the human side, uh, as, as much as it was about understanding things like organizations, about technology, we were studying computing, uh, engineering, we did a fair bit of that. Um, and then bringing it all together. And, and gosh, you know, when I look at the things I am passionate about today, that grounding and the relevance of understanding these sort of two worlds, if you will, and how they come together is, is as relevant as it's ever been. And so I was very fortunate to end up uh, doing that. And then just finally on my university, I said I, I did a year out. Um, it was a, a, a sandwich course, as they called it. Um, which is brilliant because I always encourage young people uh, to get experience with working environments. And I'd already done lots of part-time jobs as you do from the age of 15, 16 onwards, everything from delivering the local mail to working in um, uh, shops and bars. Um, I worked in, I lived in Kent, I was brought up in Kent. So I was working on hot farms and things. Like that. So all of that was part of the work experience thing. But then this year out I did in Germany and um, so I had to learn German very rapidly and actually proved to myself I could do languages, despite how they teach it in English schools. Uh, I could. Um, and it was a brilliant experience in learning about a bigger organization and, uh, and a bigger work context and environment, which I think stood me in very good stead. So what did you do then when you graduated? Where did all of that take you? Yeah, so where it took me is what I came to realize as I got into sort of the latter parts of my university career is that the world of work was going to change a lot and I found that really really fascinating and I found it particularly fascinating that one of the yeah. biggest drivers of the world of work and recognize this was um, where are we uh, the very late 70s early 80s was was about technology and I'd learned enough at university to understand that the way that computing and technology was going was going to have a very very profound impact so I said to myself right I want to work in an environment which is about understanding the changes that are happening into the world of work and to, to help to influence that, hopefully in a positive way. Um, and that led me to look at a lot of different sort of technology business. And, uh, you know, I looked at everybody from ICL as it was back in those days, uh, IBM, uh, a bunch of um, consultancies and, and the like, but ended up um, in this business, which is now called Accenture, but at the time was Arthur Anderson. So it was the consulting division of the old accounting and audit firm called Arthur Anderson. Um, and what struck me about them is they absolutely were trying to build, they weren't just 
pure technologists. They were trying to understand technology in the business context and how those things work together. And indeed, I would say that is still the secret source of um, a very large business like Accenture as it is today. And that's what appealed to me. It was, it was to come into and help, as I said, influence the, the, the direction of work and how technology was being used to hopefully improve um, not just the outcomes of work for organizational purposes, but hopefully the outcomes of work for people as well. And of course, those two things come together. Um, and that led into what became a 30-year career in, in this organization that you know, went from being part of Arthur Amson to being Amson Consulting and then to splitting away completely, going through an IPO and becoming this very large organization which existed as Accenture. And I was very privileged to be part of that journey. Um, it absolutely seemed to tick all my boxes. I was there for 30 years. I, I got on very quickly in the organization and ended up by running their global consulting business and all this people and organizational strategy and leadership and what I simply describe as the people side of business, which is ultimately to bring it full circle where my passion, I think, has always lain. And for people listening to the podcast who um, are perhaps thinking of going into consulting, um, tell us what it's like. What, what does it feel like when you're a consultant? What's good about it? And what are things about it that people might struggle with? Yeah, I mean, what's good about it, Mark, and what I always said, I said it to myself, I said it to the people I coached and mentored and brought, brought into the business over the years, is in many ways, it's a position of real privilege, because you're, you're coming into these organizations, they're entrusting a great deal to you as a consultant. They're literally opening up the kimono and saying, All right, you've got to help us understand where we are today, where we need to go and how we're going to get there in sort of simple terms. Um, and I know there are a lot of things said about consultants, like, you know, they, they borrow your watch to sell you the time, and then keep the watch, um, or they just act as a mirror. Now, there are actually some parts of that which have truth, but they are not bad things. Many businesses, certainly as I've experienced them over the years, actually need that mirror held up to them. They need that external view, um, which is not biased by all the internal politics or, or whatever might happen and say, look, this is what is really going on in your organization, and this is where you need to move to. Um, so as I said, first and foremost, I think it's, it's a great privilege, and you learn so much, of course, by working with lots of different businesses and seeing different business challenges in lots of different contexts. Um, so those, I think, are immensely powerful drivers for, for what brings people into consulting. Um, secondly, I would say that any consulting firm worth its salt has to invest in its people because at the end of the day consulting by and large is very very people driven i mean your your, your core asset quite literally is your people and their ability to uh, to think analytically think critically to communicate clearly to influence uh, to understand process and change and to work methodologies and all these other things to collaborate to work in teams you know very powerful uh, constructs which i think are important in almost every job today um, but you, you, they really do invest in their people. So I went through some incredible training uh, in all my years at Accenture um, and worked alongside some incredibly talented people because to sort of uh, answer the other part of your question is, yes, consulting is a demanding profession. I, I wouldn't pretend otherwise. Um, you are trying to meet some very demanding things from clients, which sometimes can change almost as you go through the process. Uh, you, you're typically up against deadlines. You've got financial constraints, obviously, in terms of you know, you've committed to a certain scope of work or whatever. Um, 
Uh, and they are expecting a lot from you. They're, they're typically paying a lot for consultants, so they expect a lot as well. So it is a very demanding profession, and I, I don't think anybody should go into it, therefore, with, uh, lightly. Um, but to me, uh, uh, for people who really want to learn and, and learn a lot about business in short periods of time and develop their wider understanding, it, it's a fantastic career. Um, and I would recommend it uh, you know, strongly in that regard. Um, but as I said, go into it with your eyes open. It, it's demanding as well, and, and a lot is expected of you. Um, and therefore, look, as you should in any employer, for the kind of culture and support that you're going to get. Are they just going to put you out there and say, right, get on with it and good luck? Or would you really genuinely have the support mechanisms around you, the support of training, the support of your colleagues, the support of your, your bosses and leaders, and a culture that recognizes all those, those things as being important? And to me, Accenture has always embodied those values as well. There are many other firms that do, of course, but um, I think Accenture particularly embodied those ideas as well. So you had a hugely successful career there, Peter. What did you decide to do next? First of all, the reason I left was because there was a sort of certain symmetry. I decided, you know, 30 years is quite a long time. And as I've already touched on, it is very demanding. So by then I was in my early 50s and I thought, gosh, you know, I can't keep flying. I was doing an awful lot of traveling around the world. Literally every week I was off in a different continent and talking with different organizations, different part of, of course, of our own organization. Um, and I thought, you know, this, I can't keep doing this forever and nor should I. Um, so I said, okay, I've had a very good career. I've learned a hell of a lot. I've absolutely had the opportunity, which is another great thing about consulting, is to try different things. What, what really are your core talents? What are the things you're most interested in? And as I've already said, this sort of thread that I'd seen from my early years of my life about understanding the people side of business was really coming to the fore. And, and the last seven or eight years, as I said, in Accenture, I was running their global practice and all of this stuff that, of course, particularly was about the growth of the HR profession. We were doing outsourcing and all sorts of things. So, so as I decided now was the time to move on, I was definitely not, not going to retire. I was too young for that. And, but more importantly, I, I felt there was so much more I still wanted to do. And I'm very purpose driven. Um, so I did a sort of a period of time for a couple of years in portfolio. So I did everything from, I was a fellow at London Business School teaching MBAs on these sorts of issues about business. Um, I did some independent consulting, which was quite interesting and other things besides. And I sat on some boards. So it was a good old classic portfolio career. But then after a couple of years, and I remember it was a Christmas, um, which is often a time of reflectionism when you get to an end of a year, I said, you know, this is not really keeping me happy. I'm, I suppose what I recognized in myself is I was, I'd become a very corporate animal. I'd worked in a big structured organization and, and I liked that actually. I, you know, not, it's not everybody's taste and this is something we all learn about ourselves, but I did actually like working in the structure of an organization. And then the CIPD opportunity came up and it just ticked so many boxes for me. I mean, first of all, it was, into a, a role um, which I thought I could do. Um, I wanted to move to being a CEO, um, but it was also of a size and scale, which wasn't kind of crazy and unmanageable. You could sort of get your arms around it. But most importantly, it, it was in a space which I feel very passionately about. It's a, and ultimately to me, it was about a role and an opportunity where I could help to hopefully influence the direction of the profession and influence the direction of a lot of what was happening around the world of work. Um, and of course, to, I think, to be honest, to revitalize the professional body, which needed it. Um, and it needed to be in a stronger place to help to 
guide and support and lead the profession at a time when so much was changing. So, uh, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a truism of life, isn't it, and, and careers is that people often have said to me, you know, if you're not managing your career, then who else is? Um, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's finding those opportunities uh, and being open to them um, and then grasp, grasp, grasping them when you can. And, and I was just fortunate. And I suppose also another thing that I'd learned through my years at Accenture, and I would counsel anybody to do this, is you build your networks. It's very easy when you're inside an organization to think the only network that really counts is the network of people I work with day to day. But actually, it's not. Um, and again, if you consider it can be an opportunity to do this, but you build your networks and you build your contacts and you build your connections. And then you begin to see those other opportunities. You begin to get a better sense of this is the kind of organization I might want to go into. But you've also met enough people who can coach you, counsel you, guide you, mentor you, or indeed sometimes help you find those opportunities or recognize an opportunities come up and you're the person that should put your name forward. And those things don't happen by accident. I mean, and, and they are, and I, you know, I think it's true for whatever background you might have come from, is to see that networking and building networks and relationships is a vital part of your own career support network and your own career development, and ultimately the opportunities that come with it. So taking that theme, Peter, about um, taking some personal responsibility for your development um, and career, just talk to us a little about your views about the future of work today. So we're talking in the summer of 2022. We've just had two years of COVID. Um, people have been working from home. Hybrid working seems to have become more of a thing. People seem to be working now virtually in groups more rather than physically in office or teams in the way they perhaps were. How, how do you view the future of work for people? Yeah, it's, it's a really important question, Mark. And as I said, to me, it's been one of the things that's fascinated me for a very long time. How is work changing? And what is it that's driving that? And as you rightly said, I mean, we are in a time of extraordinary change now. And crises do accelerate change. They are always catalysts for change. And, and of course, we're in a time of what's been described as polycrisis, more than one. I mean, the pandemic was a massive human crisis and, and, and as a result has put, I think, a lot more focus of attention societally, but particularly within business, about people and their health and their well-being and so forth. And we might come back to that thought. But there are other crises going on as well, geopolitical crises, which are, are very challenging because they are winding back the clock, in my view, on things that over the last 20 years plus that certainly as a consultant working in businesses around the world, I was seeing the world opening up and we were all talking about globalization and free movement of good, goods, labor and services and all those things and, and the opportunities that was providing to people as well as organizations. So the geopolitical crisis that's been going on and it's not, the Ukraine war has certainly exacerbated that hugely, but those trends were already beginning to manifest themselves. I mean, the, the growing concerns and to some degree pushback against globalization, which was, certainly clearly manifested in, in votes like Brexit and certainly you know, the, the kind of rhetoric coming from the United States under Donald Trump about, you know, let's bring things back to the United States and make sure we're looking after our own before we worry about others. And that was a, becoming quite a, a dominant theme in the last sort of 10 years or so. So uh, the, the point is, is that when you look at the future of work, it's, we have to look at it quite holistically. 
um, there have been trends that have been driving the future work for quite some time. Uh, I've mentioned technology um, as, again, being a huge thing, uh, which, of course, is driving a lot about how jobs are being reshaped, how we use artificial intelligence, automation, all those other things. But it's also social and demographic change. Um, people's attitudes changing. And again, I found this fascinating the last sort of 20 years as we've talked about the rise of the millennial generations, Gen Y, now the Gen Z, digital natives, um, and how their attitudes to work have changed from perhaps uh, um, my generation and our generations. Um, so social and demographic change, uh, as I said, you know, political and geopolitical change also has a big impact on business um, and economic change as well, which of course is now manifesting itself in a different kind of crisis. And, and that's forcing businesses to really have to reappraise, I mean, all these things, forcing businesses to have to reappraise a lot of things, their operating models, their cultures, um, how they do really address things like investment in the future. And how do you deal with short-term crises and challenges whilst not losing sight of the long longer-term purpose and direction of your business? So. I think in the end, and this is what I tried to capture in the book I wrote during the lockdown on the new world of work, was it's trying to look at this quite holistically. So lots of drivers of the future of work have been for a while. Um, the crises are, are catalyzing that and accelerating it. And that, therefore, you come to the conclusion in the end, there's no one single future. It's not like we're all suddenly going to be doing one thing versus another. I think what it does is open up uh, lots of different operating models, different ways in which we can work. And, and the old mantras of the past where there was either best practice or a you know, one-size-fits-all solution because that seemed to be simple, I'm not sure were true at the time when we were espousing those ideas back in the sort of 90s and noughties. They're certainly not true now. And, and that's what I find exciting. And I think for certainly people in their earlier stages of their careers, this is an incredible time yes it's challenging but it's an incredible time to shape and influence the future of work for the better because we are genuinely opening up our thinking in businesses everywhere to say gosh so what do we do now what what kind of operating mold should we have how do we make sure we're a more purpose-driven business how do we understand all these different dynamics going on because if we do not understand these things and embed them in our thinking then we're not going to be around we, we literally, you know, the, these are so fundamental now, understanding these things. Is, they are absolutely central to the idea of a sustainable business. But they're also very fundamental to what I regard as a responsible business. And in all the difficulties and challenges and uncertainties that are happening around us, you know, geopolitically and socially and so forth, there's never been a more important time for business to stand up. And you and I have talked about these ideas a lot. Stand up and say, this is what a responsible business looks like. And that's what we need to be because we want to make sure we're attracting and retaining all the people we want to attract and retain. But that we're also driving and seeing our role in driving, you know, without being too grandiose about it, a better future of work and ultimately the role of work and organizations in driving better societies. And gosh, what, a, what an opportunity. And as I said, I know it's tough, but my goodness, what an opportunity for you know, the next generations to come and take these ideas and really drive them home in ways that I think we've talked about for a long time, but have not, we've struggled to make work. Um, and I think now we're at a point in time where everybody recognizes we have to make these things work. And who do you think will be the driving force behind the changes you've described? Do you think that 
employers will change things or do you think that employees will be the driving force? Yeah, I think it's a really important question. I think you know, the, the easy answer is it's both, isn't it? And you know, what, what I find really interesting now is, is a lot of the talk about, okay, what are these agendas for responsible business and how do we drive towards these principles? Is recognizing actually every business has many stakeholders. And yet, as you and I know, if you go back into you know, certainly the last decades of the last century, we were very, very driven by you know, the, the financial stakeholder and the profit motive. And indeed, you know, I've often referenced Milton Friedman um, as you know, the great Nobel Prize winning American economist of the 70s, who characterized a lot of this thinking by saying, in essence, the sole purpose of business is to make money. Now, that has, I think, was quite literally taken in many ways for, for many, many businesses to say, so that's what's important. And it's the primacy of the, state, of the shareholder and everything else is in pursuit of that. And, and then I've got to be, I will be measured and driven by keeping the profit, my profits as high as I can. And there are lots of ways to do that. Not all of them will drive long-term sustainability. So that, you know, cutting my costs, paying bigger dividends to my shareholders, um, or indeed even things like share buybacks. Um, are very good ways of propping up the share price in the short term, but not necessarily leading to long-term sustainable change. So, yes, at the very heart of the idea of who's responsible is this combination, as you rightly said, between the employer and the, the worker or the workforce. But if, if you look at all of the stakeholders of business now, we're talking about, yes, of course, the financial stakeholder, of course, has got to be there. But it is then the employees and seeing the workforce, and indeed you, you did this a lot in your career, I know, Mark, seeing the employee as a vital stakeholder of the business as well, as well as your customers, as well as your suppliers, and they are part of your, you know, your, your business ecosystem and you have to treat them with the trust and respect and all these other things. And the communities of which we are part, which is a very, very important part to me of a, of a responsible business, how it acts with its community and supports inclusion and all these other ideas. And of course now very much so the environment. Um, so in, in other words, it's this sort of idea of a multi-stakeholder view of business and not just a primacy of the shareholder view of the business. But if we are not starting, as you called out, with the idea of the employee or the workforce as a primary stakeholder of the business, then we're going to miss an awful lot of what will actually ultimately drive the sustainability of our organisations anyway. Um, Peter, you, you obviously write a lot about um, uh, organisations and people and, the, and work and you comment often on, on radio and TV, but you've also written two books and I just want to spend a few minutes talking about those two books. So in 2007, you published The Talent Powered Organisation. And then um, in 2021, the new world of work. So if we can talk about the, the talent-powered organization first, mm -hmm. and for our listeners, just just a little around what, what it was that motivated you to write that book and what they'll get from reading it. Yeah, no, thanks, Mark. I mean, what motivated me to write it first is that... Um, again, having had the privilege of the platform in many ways that I had as a consultant, being able to visit many different organizations and see how people were thinking about these questions of people more broadly in their organizations. And this shift away from, and you'll remember it, you know, the, what used to be, you know, the, the war for talent that was described at you know, the turn of the century. Um, and the talent at that point being seen as 
the super high potentials, you know, the so-called brightest and the best. And the, the model of thinking then was if I just recruited these people and let them go, then everything would be great. And, and we saw that clearly was not the case. So part of what I wanted to do was to sort of acknowledge the shift and hence yeah. the, the idea of the talent-powered organization from one of where we talked about talent in a very defined way, um, as I said, the sort of idea of the brightest and the best, um, to a much, much broader idea of talent. And talent ultimately is about all the talent and skills that you need. Um, and that every organization needs a real mix of that. They need real diversity of experience and background. Uh, and then not every job is quite clearly requiring people with top university degrees, nor should they. Um, and you've got to be just as able to attract these critical skills that are needed at every level of an organization and help them to develop uh, as much as you would say, yeah, well, I want you know, the top talent from the best universities. So that, that was a, what I was trying, therefore, through that book was to signal that shift and therefore to think much more holistically and much more strategically about all the forms of talent and, and to move therefore to a, a better dialogue about actually when you think about business, um, uh, as somebody once said to me, there are only two things you really have in business ultimately. One is money and the other is people. And of course we measured and understand money to death, but we haven't done enough about the people. Um, so the talent-powered organization, as I said, was trying to bring out that broader idea and say, you've got to think strategically about people. You've got to think about the capabilities you need. You've got to plan ahead in terms of workforce planning, where you're going to get those skills and capabilities from recognizing the many different options. And then all the different practices that drive the attraction and retention of people, you know, the broad sort of sense of talent management. So that was that was really what that, that book was about. And, and I enjoyed writing it and thought, and then... My wife said to me, never write another book again because it's quite hard. And then, yeah, roll the clock forwards and, yeah, whatever it was, yeah, 10, 12 years later, I was writing another book, which we'll probably come on to. Well, if, if we can come on to that now, because we've touched on it a little when we mm. talked about um, how the world of work is changing. And uh, in 2001, you published The New World of Work. So, again, um, your motivation for writing that, although I think from... The comments you've given us already, we all know that, the lockdown and how it made people change the way they, they work. Um, but tell us about that book and, and tell us about what people can draw from it. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, it, it, it had been sort of gestating in my mind for a while. As I said, I, I regard myself as having been very fortunate in my career, both as a consultant and also now as leading the professional body for having that exposure to so many different people and being able to hear so many different viewpoints and see them in practice. Um, and what I'd witnessed since I wrote the first book over the last sort of 10 years was just how fast things were beginning to change. Um, and, you know, again, as I said, driven by a number of things, not just by technology, which has, of course, been advancing at such a rapid rate. And then along came the crises. Um, and that absolutely then gave me the impetus to say, right, I really want to write this stuff down. And um, and a lot of people have said to me, because I've been talking on these subjects for quite a number of years, write, write this down, you know, try, try and pull it all together. And whilst I write a lot of articles and might comment on things, the reality of writing a book is, is a bit of an indulgence as well. It's hard work, but it's a bit of an indulgence because you're not limited to a thousand words or 500 words. I mean, the, 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 the new world of work ended up as about 130,000 words. But what I tried to do is really to draw on not just my own experience, but the experience of many others. And, and the first part of the book is to 
to describe the contextual things that are going on around us, which are ultimately driving and shaping the future of work. And sort of taking a bit of a pestle analysis of the political, economic, social, technological, even to some extent legal environmental changes, which I've already touched on in, in our conversation, which really are the things that are accelerating you know, the changes in how we think about work and responsible business and so on. Um, I drew on then ideas like, well, if those are the things that are driving the future of work, then the sort of pivot over to what this might all mean for us was around actually things about what we measure. Um, because at the end of the day, I'm, I'm a bit of a believer in that old adage of what me gets measured gets done. And yet what I could see and many others have observed for a long time was we were not, weren't even measuring the right things. I mean, to go back to my analogy, if you've got money and people, while well, we were doing lots of work on measuring money, but we weren't really measuring and understanding people and all these dynamics of business like, well, let, let's start with even the quantitative things like, do we understand the makeup of our workforce? And how diverse is that? Because that's important, not just for your social responsibilities as a business. It's important because it drives creativity and innovation. And then finding most people didn't measure that effectively. All the way up to understanding what was becoming a big debate about things like corporate culture. I mean, the 2008 banking crisis was not just because we didn't follow a bunch of rules. It's because we all started to behave in ways which had lost sight of the purpose and role of things like banks. Um, so it was trying to understand those sorts of dynamics. So as I said, one of the sort of pivot points on the book between the first part, which is really talking about all these big contextual drivers and changes, to the second part of the book is on what do we do about it, was actually we've got to think about how we measure these things and how we create greater transparency. Um, and hence, you know, into the subjects now of ESG, environmental and social and governance questions, which is so critical to driving a, a greater coherence and sense of, of responsible business and what we need to be transparent on. So then the second book, a second part of the book was, okay, so what have we got to think about? And it was everything from you know, how we have to think about our workforces and, and future capabilities, uh, our leadership and leadership capabilities, skills and skills planning and learning and development and reinventing that. And things like well-being, which has to be a really central pillar, I believe, uh, in driving businesses for the future and indeed society for the future. Because when we come back to the importance of people at work, uh, to me, the, the most central theme is about their well-being, their mental, emotional, physical well-being. And if we can understand and measure those things and how work is impacting that and indeed how people who are in a good place around their well-being are also productive and creative and all these other things, then that is one of the, the strongest single measures to me of, of an idea about the future of work as human and embedding people much more centrally into the corporate consciousness and strategic thinking of businesses everywhere. So I think hopefully there's a, a lot that people can get out of the book and understanding a lot of these big dynamics and changes. I reference tons and tons of other things, not just my own thinking, um, and trying to bring it together, hopefully in ways that can help people uh, understand it for themselves and for their own organisations. Thank you, Peter. And you can buy both of Peter's books on the um, uh, Work or Resource Centre in the book section. And if you are a premium customer, you also get a 20% reduction, which is a complete bargain, Peter. Um, Peter, I, I want to finish with, with really a last question about hybrid working, which for many people, I think, has been one of the biggest changes that's come um, from the, uh, the COVID epidemic. Um, and I'm conscious that you're the chair of the government 
departments, uh, flexible working task force. So you do that for the business, energy and industrial strategy, department of government. So to your mind, because there's so much talk about it at the moment, whether people will go back to the office all the time, part of the time, what's your view about hybrid working? Um, is it her to stay? Are government ministers right to demand civil servants go back to their office all day, every day? Um, how, how do you view the topic? Yeah, I think first and foremost, I mean, to go back to this sort of construct of future work is that if I think about you know, more directly the things that are changing in the world where, that really mean things to people literally in their day-to-day working lives, this is definitely one, um, which I've long believed in, the idea that work can and should be more flexible. I mean, after all, we've invented technologies everywhere that can allow us to work in different ways. And I don't just mean office workers. I mean, I don't know, surgeons who are able to operate on people 2,000 miles away. Um, There are are so many different ways that that technology is allowing us to work in these different forms. And and the reason why it's important is because we've actually known for a long time that through many surveys, particularly the younger generations coming into work, the millennials and and the Gen Zers, is they to be honest, in many cases, simply do not understand why we worked in the ways that we were. Why do we all have to turn up to offices nine to five, Monday to Friday, and endure the commute and all these other things, when they they know very well that they can work in these different ways, and they want that choice. And therefore, much more of the debate in the last sort of 10, 15 years about the future work has had at its heart this idea that uh, we can work more flexibly, and we can balance our work and our lives more. Because after all, that's central to the tenet also of well-being. We know that's true. Uh, it's also central to the tenet of the idea of inclusion because we know many people um, are not able to work effectively or even in some cases work at all uh, if we cannot support more flexible ways of working um, and to give them more opportunity to work, you know, perhaps sometime remotely, sometime from the office or some on different working patterns and so forth. So to me, the whole construct of, of hybrid and flexible working is a very central idea of the future of work. I mean, there are other things that emerge too around future work debates, like you know, how much we have to upskill and reskill and how many jobs we will have and the, and, and the, the ideas of it's not so much um, a job for life as a life of jobs. I mean, those are all part of it as well. But honestly, if you, if you took one of the really central ideas of the future of work, I think this is it. Now, the challenge we've got, or, or let me start with the opportunities. So the opportunities, I think, as I laid it out, it, it, it provides people that far greater opportunity to balance their lives effectively. It's really good for inclusion and so forth. And we've known those things for a while. The pandemic's taught us we can do far more of this thing, these ways of working than we ever imagined possible. But on the other hand are some of the challenges. And and some of those challenges range from, if I'm honest, um, a long entrenched mindset and view of what work is about. And that work is about people going to a place of work so I can see them working and that said to me they're committed or not committed um, and therefore the whole cultures of presenteeism have grown up around those ideas and to be honest we have to challenge that and we need to continue to challenge it because as you already pointed out there are many people who still think that that's the way that we work and if you're not doing that then you're not really working and and I find that you know not to put too fine a point on it quite offensive to people who are working very effectively when they're not not always in the office but it just speaks to a some of the cultural dynamic and shift that we have to make alongside this. Um, and the other challenge that I would call out, which is really, really important, is the idea of fairness. So when we talk about hybrid working, I always say, yes, let's extend it into flexible working, because hybrid working 
is really a particular form of flexible working where I have the choice of uh, or opportunity to sometimes work from home or a different place and sometimes coming into the office and having that balance. Uh, flexible working incorporates all these other forms, you know, flexible work schedules, part-time working, uh, four-day working weeks, all these other things that we're debating now as a future work. And I think, um, you know, I really do believe, going back to this opportunity the younger generations have coming into work, is they will change these things. And we will look in 10 years' time and say, why did we ever imagine that this that we would ever work in different ways and more hybrid and more flexible ways because we've seen the benefits of it. We've adjusted our working cultures. We've trained our managers properly to be fair in how they uh, evaluate people, not just in the hours that they input, but the what they produce as an output. And all these things will have happened. And this is what we've got to drive together uh, towards a future work, which has got to be good for people, where work is good for them, where well-being is one of the outcomes. But in doing those things, we've also got productive effective and responsible businesses and those i think are our big agendas for the future and peter my final question if you were giving some advice now to your 22 year old self <laughs> what would it be i think it would be true to understand first of all not to panic i always i talk a lot to younger people and i can see the pressure they're under and then they worry like oh my goodness what job am i going to do and it needs to be the perfect job I mean, I had some of those thoughts when I was 22 as well, but I honestly do believe that the world is an incredible place and, and, and there's so much variety of opportunity. And the, the first job you do doesn't have to be your lifelong career. And indeed, as I already touched on, I think one of the things that has changed in the world of work in the last 30, 40 years is actually many people do see these opportunities and say, well, I'm going to do this for a period of time, then I might go and do something else. And I've got children in, in their 20s, and, and certainly my eldest daughter is already on her third or fourth career, as you might see it. And good on her. She's What she's learning is actually these careers aren't all completely separate. There are lots of transferable skills, but she's navigating her way towards the things that she has the greatest passion in, as well as perhaps um, uh, some of her really core skills uh, and that drive a sense of purpose. And, and that's what I would say to myself when I was younger is, therefore, see the world as a world of opportunity. Go try different things. They won't all work, but you will learn something through it. Persevere, because that is important. Don't give up at the first hurdle. I mean, just to use my elder daughter again, she worked for a very, very tough boss and she was all ready to give up. And I said, you will learn more in that experience probably than many other experiences. And, and unfortunately, you will come across very tough bosses. And one of the things you have to learn with is to how to adapt and deal with them and not just give up. So see the world of opportunity, persevere, learn, find your talents um, through that, that process of experimentation and learning, grow your networks, which I touched on already, and seek that North Star. I think, I, I, as I described through this podcast, I did have a North Star when I was young. It wasn't terribly clearly defined, but it was that sense that I wanted to be in a place that would help to influence the world of work for better. And that that idea was very constructed around this, uh, my sort of guiding star again, of, of being a humanitarian, a humanist, call it what you will, that fascination and interest in people. And I don't think as a young person, you have to define it much further than that. You can just sort of gently navigate your way, try these different things. And see what the world brings you. Because the final thing I would say is the one thing you can be sure of as a young person is you're going to be working for a long time. It will consume a large part of your life and, look, and the things that you do. It'll be a large part in many cases of what defines you, but it will also be one of those fantastic things when it goes well 
of where you find your talents and you're able to progress and grow those talents with the support of others in order to do something which is meaningful and makes a positive difference to others and and what an opportunity that is and 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 to me those have ultimately been the things that have guided me as well peter thank you very much thank you for sharing with those uh, your amazing career uh, and your thoughts about the future of work we all wish you every success for the future thank you and thank you for having me Thank you for listening. For more on this podcast, head to workall.co where you can find out how you can get happier at work. Music